What is up, Asymmetry? Gosh, I just had the most fantastic conversation with Lucy Kerhulis, who is a big canopy vascular researcher in the coastal Redwood Range. She has a botany bachelor of science from Cal Poly Humboldt. She got her master's at the same institution studying Redwood physiology. She has a PhD from Northern Arizona University studying ponderosa pine echophysiology. She's currently an associate professor in the forestry department at Cal Poly Humboldt. She's worked with all of the pioneers of big canopy research, vascular research, and study of the redwoods. And we got to sit down with her and talk to her. And I just, I can't say how fortunate I feel in this microcosm of bonsai to have it branching out into the macro environment and all of these talented, incredibly uh, intellectual, curious people that are studying the great, fascinating capacity of trees, ancient trees, the largest and tallest trees, and trying to understand these, what Lucy will call superpowers of these trees that allow them to live so long and thrive as a singular organism at the scale that they exist at. Uh, Unbelievable conversation. Forgive me for my abundant number of questions, but it really is a dream to get to talk with somebody like Lucy. And so much gratitude and appreciation for Lucy taking the time not only to talk with us today on the podcast, but also uh, as a pivotal part of our Mariah in the Wilds Redwoods project, which has yet to be released, but is absolutely a game changer for the project uh, based on the science and knowledge that Lucy contributed. Anyways, sit back, relax, and enjoy Lucy Kerholis, everyone. I wish I could tell you that we had a tremendous number of bells and whistles and fantastic things that we do, but um, I think a podcast is just a really fancy way of talking about something that we both find to be really interesting, and you know a lot more about it than I do, so... Uh, it's particularly exciting that you're willing to sit down and talk with us. And obviously, you went and uh, worked with Ira and Josh on some uh, on a filming project, which was really cool. Um, and we're pretty excited to see that come to fruition. We're still we're still working on it, but it's uh, it should be really powerful when we're finished. Yeah, I'm excited to see how that turns out. It was it was fun to go hang out in the forest <laughs> yeah. for two days. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean. How often are you out hanging out in the forest? Is this uh, a lifestyle for you? Is it something you get to do less of now that you have more responsibility? What does that look like? Yeah, I, I, I would say I don't go out and just like chill in the forest a lot, you know. Um, so I felt like when we went out um, with Josh and Ira, it was kind of fun because we were just kind of, it was like lighthearted and, you know, we we're just kind of chatting in the woods. Whereas um, sometimes when I'm out there, you know, it's work, like we're, you know, we got, we've got objectives or, you know, study questions that we're pursuing, um, doing field work. So sometimes, so, I mean, I'm outside a lot, but it's not, sometimes it can, it it feels like I'm doing my job, not just kind of chattering along with people in beautiful spots. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and who proposes these projects when you're out doing work? Yeah, um, generally, you know, the, like the way it works is as a scientist, you know, you have ideas, you have questions, um, you're, you know, intimately knowledgeable about some sort of a system. And so 
you have questions and you write a proposal, like a research proposal, and you know you give some background information about the context of the questions that you're asking, and then you pose these very specific, well-articulated, well-thought-out questions, and then you propose the methods that you would use to kind of get at those questions. Maybe you provide some insight into what you might expect to find based on your knowledge, and then you kind of shop that proposal around to different funders. Um, and somebody might bite and say, yeah, this seems like a really important set of questions. Um, I think the methods are sound. Um, it seems like you know what you're doing. Here's some money, go do your thing. Um, and we'll see you back in three years or whatever with your deliverables that you said you would do. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of, yeah. So that's kind of typically what something might look like. And who's, and who funds that? Who are these funders? For something like yeah, that. There's a, lot, there's a lot of different um, funders. Like for my work, um, I've had stuff funded by um, Save the Redwoods League is a big one. And um, the National Science Foundation, NSF, um, Department of Energy, because a lot of times they're interested in like carbon stuff. Who else? Um, the USDA, because forests are considered an agricultural crop. So um the USDA has a bunch of money that they'll um, kick down for studying forests. The, let's see, Agricultural Research Institute for California will also fund a bunch um, of forestry studies just because if we're thinking of forests like a crop, which is how, um, you know, <laughs> nationally they're kind of thought of um, as far as product production forests. Um, who else? Cal Fire funds a lot of research. Um yeah, I think those are some of the big ones that come to mind of, of folks that have, have funded my work. Right. And and then what what would they do with the information that they obtain from your work? Like how, because you you developed this research and you know, we've we've worked with the Ancient Forest Society and we've climbed the sequoias and we've been on cone collecting trips and some things like that and you know, like there's a relationship there with the National Park Service and trying to like document and preserve the DNA of these trees, you know, because of the fire susceptibility that's grown in the in their ecosystem. But like, I, I still am not totally clear, like they're doing vascular research on the giant sequoias, like, who reads that research? Like, where does that <laughs> research go? How is that deemed valuable? And what would these yeah. institutions that fund this want to do with this information? Totally. And it's a really good question. In in the academic world, you know, people, um, it, it, it can sometimes feel like a dead end. Like you're like, oh, I'm doing, you know, I just spent three years investigating this question about like leaf anatomy and physiology, you know, like, mm, who cares? Like at the end of the day, you know, who's going to read that? Um, but there's shockingly like a world of people out there that find this stuff really interesting. So, you know, you, you, you're, typical goal is that you're going to publish it in a scientific peer-reviewed journal, primary literature, um, and then it's kind of immortalized. That information is available publicly to anyone who wants it in the world via like Google Scholar and stuff like that. Um, and then um, depending on the genre of your research, you know, you can try to make it really applied. Um, and then hopefully land managers, you know, people who are writing silvicultural prescriptions for forest thinning treatments and stuff might read your work and say like, oh yeah, like, you know, I read about this, that sometimes, you know, pockets of denser trees can actually be facilitating, you know, um, tree vigor rather than a competitive force or something, you know, so they might take that information from a study that you did and try to um, work it into their adoptive management um, prescriptions, things like that. Um, 
And like when you write a proposal to try to get funding to do science, um, there's like usually a, a whole section <laughs> of the proposal is on what your deliverables will be. And like a big portion of that is um, like research findings dissemination. Like how are you going to share what you found and make it meaningful to a broad audience? So doing things like podcasts um, is helpful, you know, because it's not your typical thing or giving talks at um, you know, scientific meetings, scientific conferences, weaving some of the cool findings into some of my classes that I teach. Um, so it's, it's you know, reaching students that are studying for us. Um, doing things like you can do scientific presentations at conferences where a bunch of scientists come together. But then you can also do more lighthearted, chill presentations like science on tap at your local pub, you know, where people can have a pint and like listen to some sciencey stuff that you've kind of made fun and exciting for that talk. Um, so there's different ways that you can sort of get that information out there. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because you know, you said shockingly, there's a lot of people that are interested in this, but it's not shocking to us because obviously we're like hardcore tree geeks, like, uh, you know, to a, to a degree that I think is consistent. We just, we just work in a miniature form, which like, you know, gives us, gives us like a really interesting, you know, it's a little bit like Gulliver's Travels kind of vibe but but the the fascinating thing that i find about working in miniature is that we can really experiment with our trees here and see things happen more rapidly in a controlled environment than they happen in the native environment on such a more macro scale and that's always where i've felt like man bonsai does have a significant capacity to offer scientific solutions to some of the things that i feel like um the subject matter that I was hearing Anthony Ambrose uh, or Steen Christensen talk about, you know, and I, I, I've read a lot of, you know, Steve Sillett's work and Susan Samard's work and thinking about like these concepts in this macro environment, it's such a more daunting, it seems to me anyways, because I'm working on a miniature scale, that it's such a more daunting scale to be working on. Um, and the miniaturized form has always felt like there's like an opportunity. Um, to be able to do some very rapid testing and research and have rapid results and sort of uh, to test ideas quickly on these yeah. on these tinier trees. We, and we've done it a lot. We've done it a lot for our own curiosities. But it's really interesting talking with the macro science world about these kinds of things. <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't really thought of that, that it's almost like when you're working with the bonsai trees, you could kind of accelerate yeah. <laughs> the, the you know response time <laughs> of different things you might do to the tree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think, too, it's like so much more manageable, um, the size and the scale. Obviously, there's not like the, the, the quantity of tissue to like be able to do big, big tests, you know, like vascular research and water mobility and stuff like that's not going to be possible. But certainly... One thing we've been working very hard on is um, is nutrition and just like what these different nutrients do inside the plant and being able to monitor the nutrition. And we've taken a lot of field samples of like um, giant redwoods in the native environment and done foyer samples of the nutrition that's in their leaf mass. And then we've huh. compared it to the nutrition that's in the leaf mass of these trees in, in, in a domesticated environment and then in a containerized environment. And 
you can track through the nutrient content the state of the health of the tree based on sort of fundamental knowledge of like nutrient balancing in a healthy plant system. And it was really interesting to see the outcome of native redwood samples because they're just like jacked full of aluminum, which is a real sign of stress uh, Mm. in a native ecosystem for there to be a lot of aluminum in a plant. So, you know, like really fascinating stuff. But I'm not yeah. a, I'm not a scientist so much as just like a curious plant plant person. Yeah, it was really speaking of that, it was interesting. Um, there's this guy, uh, I think it's Zane Moore is his last name, and he's a PhD student at UC Davis. Um, and he part of his dissertation, which he's not done with, <laughs> so I don't know if he'll finish or not, but mm-hmm. um he was looking at albino redwoods. Oh yeah. Um, Cool. The redwood is like a genetic, it can be like a genetic chimera where in different portions of the one single redwood tree, like different um, parts of its genome can be phenotypically expressed. Mm-hmm. And so you might have a normal looking redwood tree, but then like one branch is albino or something. And so um, Zane was looking at some of the foliar chemistry of the albino tissue. And I think he, I saw like a talk or read an abstract or something um, that he gave at a conference where he was finding that the albino foliage had really high heavy metal content. Mm. And so maybe thinking that like the tree was using it as a dumping ground. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the, leaves, the leaves aren't photosynthetic. It's not like it'd be taking a hit um, in terms of reducing its photosynthetic capacity if it um, kills this foliage via like a heavy dump of um, of heavy metals. Anyway, it's kind of interesting. Just yeah, looking at that's super fascinating. Nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we really, through, through all of this nutrition, which, you know, correlates to the red redwood in terms of the redwoods, like durability and its state of existence and existence in the current climate, which I want to ask you about, but like trees that have a lower resin content or a softer heartwood and tend to rot from the core out as opposed from rotting from the exterior in, which is not the redwood, right? Redwood has the heartwood of the redwood is like the, 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 the like strength of that tree in a lot of ways, um, from what I understand. And you might, uh, have something, you know, different to say, which I'm super curious about, but like, we've found that trees that have high resin content and high, uh, quantities of really durable heartwood, um, have the ability to adapt and endure a lot of toxicity changes a lot better than plants that lack that resin content and lack that solid structure and significant core of heartwood, which, you know, I don't know the mechanisms and the physiology of that behavior, but it's been really, it's been, it's been really overtly obvious that there is a direct correlation to at least the ability to endure heavy metal content without succumbing to it and the ability to endure high salt content without succumbing to it in plants when we're doing this these leaf sample testing and stuff there's like a one-to-one correlation to heartwood uh predominant heartwood you know base trees and tolerance which i think is like so radical yeah that's really interesting i think redwood um, my friend Marie Antoine <laughs> calls redwoods heartwood. Um, it's it's like it's superpower or oh, something for so, sure. Um, yeah, so it's kind of redwood superpower. Um, is it's heartwood super rot resistant? And um, it's interesting though because at least the with my understanding of redwood, um, the wood itself, like the secondary xylem that redwood produces, um, and this is true, I think for off the top of my head, all of Cupressaceae, um, the the conifers there in the cypress family, um, 
I don't, they don't make resin ducks like in the wood, you know, like the pines do, like you'll see these resin canals or resin mm-hmm. ducks in the wood. But for the Cooper Sacy, it seems like because they don't, um, and maybe there's some taxa that like, you know, march to a different tune. But um, as far as I understand it with the Cooper Sacy, they don't have those resin ducks. And so it seems like they have to have extra superpower um, heartwood, you know, as that line of defense, because they're not um, moving the resins around via these big ducks through their wood mm-hmm. um, as a, a line of defense. But yeah, so that could lend some insight into <laughs> what's up with the the redwood superpower extra extra bomber uh, heartwood. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if they're not if they're not moving the resin through ducts, how, how, where does the sap, I mean, it's my understanding that sap comes from pitch pores, uh, that are sort of irregularly distributed throughout the tree. And these are like, these are like your fire stations, hospitals, police stations. They're like your emergency centers. And when something happens, sort of this, this pitch pour suddenly, uh, activates and like, it's like a safety mechanism. It's a sealing mechanism. It's something that prevents intrusion. Like, but, but, but in the, what'd you call it? Cupressacea family? Uh, the Cupressacea. Yeah. Cupressacea. Okay, cool. Um, you know, like, cause I'm looking at junipers as like having particularly scopulorum, the Rocky mountain juniper has just like a ridiculously hard, durable, uh, heartwood compared to other uh-huh. native juniper species. And, and, and I see a lot of sap when I'm working with them in the, you know, in the miniaturized form and the amount of like, you know, significant odor that you get on a hot day coming out of the foyer mass and then seeing it cool off and seeing the pitch harden and become white speckles on the foyer mass and stuff. It's like, where is all of this coming from then if there's no resin ducts? Yeah. So they may, they have resin for sure. Um, like in their leaves, that's why they're so aromatic. Mm-hmm. And so in the Cooper's ACE, so, um, they have resin, r- resin ducts in their leaves, um, to deter herbivory, presumably. And then they also, a lot of times will have resin pockets in their bark. So like if you picture, um, like another group of trees, the true firs, abies, they also don't make resin ducts in their wood. So like in, in through the secondary xylem, there's not going to, if you're trying to like, you have a chunk of wood and you're trying to identify what it is. One of the key steps in the dichotomous wood key is like, are there resin canals? Um, and so abies is another group of trees that doesn't make resin ducts in the wood, but as a line of defense and abies also are kind of, um, they're not very long lived, generally speaking, among the conifers because they don't invest in bomber heartwood, you know. Um, and so what they do have, though, is a lot of times on their bark and particularly in younger true firs, younger abies, you'll notice that their bark is just like covered with all these resin blisters. They're really fun to pop <laughs> um, and they smell really good. But that's kind of like a line of defense because they don't have resin ducts in their wood and they also don't have um, a bunch of heartwood that is going to be super rot resistant. So they kind of have this line of defense on their outer perimeter of skin in the bark. It's so interesting. It's so freaking cool. Yeah, we work with Abies laciocarpa a lot. Um, and those resin blisters are like the the <laughs> the the tissue, the soft, succulent nature of the exterior bark. Um, and then having a hard time finding ancient representations. I mean, Hurricane Ridge in the Olympic National Park is like that's the oldest Abies laciocarpas that I've ever seen, and I've never seen anything that even rivals them. I know the grand champion laciocarpa is in the Olympic National Park. I'm not quite sure where. I've never actually been to that physical tree, but um, that's super interesting because, like, we work with Sierra juniper a lot too, which is Occidentalis australis, 
And the Sierra juniper uh, is one of the longer lived junipers in the world, at least uh, from from like preliminary and I would say pretty archaic uh, tree dating processes from back in the day, like the Bennett juniper uh, is the oldest known Sierra juniper and Sierra juniper historically rots from the interior out and does not exist, you know, exist around this heartwood sort of model that longer lived conifers typically do. And I find that to be really fascinating as well, because it, 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 it's like counter to the concept of longevity. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The junipers are are interesting too, especially those gnarly mountain ones. Um, where they can just sort of have this living ribbon of, yes. of you know, like a lot of the tree around um, the stem might be dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're really beautiful. I mean, as you are well aware in yeah. like your bonsai art, but that I think is one of the really neat characteristics of juniper, particularly the montane junipers growing at high elevations. I don't know if um, why maybe they're more predisposed to have so much, I'm assuming hydraulic failure in the stem, which kind of makes some of the wood um, non-functional hydraulically. So they have cavitation or embolism, maybe in the cold montane temperatures, more freeze-thaw cycles. Um, When water is changing phase in the xylem tissue, it can create air bubbles as it goes from like a solid back to a liquid um, or a liquid back to a solid. So these freeze-thaw cycles, which with um, climate change and like springs coming earlier, sometimes can have adverse effects on some conifers, like the um, Alaska yellow cedar, the Cypress nucatensis. That one has been having a lot of issues with um, embolism, so loss of hydraulic capacity due to anomalous like freeze-thaw cycles up in the northern latitudes in spring, um, where the kind of things will start to thaw and then it um, it freezes again. Anyway, this can create um, air bubbles in the tree vascular system, which can have problems. And so I wonder if maybe in the montane junipers, maybe some of that freeze-thaw, like exposure to cold temps in winter, maybe lends them to a little bit more hydraulic failure, which contributes to that cool kind of ribbon of living cambium and um, living portion of the stem that can kind of spiral around the tree. And you see it in the bristlecone pines too. Yeah, you do see it in the bristlecone pines. That's so fascinating that you bring that up because, I mean, that's what we prize when we look for junipers to work with in bonsai. We look for that dead wood and that living vein, you know, moving, especially in its interaction when you get torsion or spiraling of the living vein. It's like a characteristic in junipers that is at the pinnacle of quality visually for that material as a bone size subject. But, you know, what we find when we're looking for these really old stunted junipers is we typically find that it's uh, UV degradation of the living tissue or just desiccation in general in the Mm -hmm. higher elevation, especially with the reflective nature of light off of the rock outcroppings where they historically find a foothold over other species that are more durable. And yeah. And so you inevitably you'll see the, the living tissue be on the, on the rock side, on the shade side of the tree and anything that's facing upwards towards the light will have desiccated and been completely destroyed by what I'm assuming is ultraviolet, uh, intensity or heat accumulation. And yeah, we had a heat dome here, um, two years ago where we got up to 117 degrees in the garden. And I never knew this to be a possibility, but every single living branch that that sun hit at the peak temperature, it killed that branch because it destroyed the vascular tissue. Uh, it didn't kill the foliage, it killed the branch and then the foliage slowly died and then the bark would fall off of this blistered, burned area. And it happened 
most prevalently on our ponderosa pines of all species. Interesting. Yeah, huh. ponderosa cool. pines suffered the most. And as a pine species where they're adapted to exist, what we've found in the bonsai endeavor is that they move the lowest amount of water of any pine species that we work with. And so hmm. my guess is with that temperature and that sun intensity and that low water mobility because of their cuticle formation and their needle physiology, they just simply were not able to move liquid through that area of the bark fast enough to cool it and it and it caused the degradation of the of the tissue. That's my hypothesis. I have no idea how accurate it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's wild. Yeah. Neat experiment. I mean, in your garden, I guess. <laughs> it's I mean like unfor actually like really unfortunate, but we had to make lemonade out of lemons on that one, you know? So like yeah. just like observing it, it was such a it was and and then going back to the rock in the Rockies or the High Sierras and looking at where that living tissue orients uh in regards to the rock and the south facing sun and the west facing sun there is like a very significant relationship to that, that tissue, um, being on the North and East side of the tree. Yeah. Wow. I have to chew on that. Yeah, for think a about bit. that. Yeah. Like, I'd be, I'd be yeah. so curious to know what you thought, but it's like, well, it seems like, um, with fire damage on stems and stuff, there's like a, a lot of work that looks at that. And there seems to be this like threshold of 60 degrees Celsius. Um, and, you know, it depends on like the bark thickness and how much fuel is there and, you know, a number of different things. Um, tree water status, all that, you know, residence time of like how long the fire hangs out at the base of the tree. But it seems like 60 degrees C is kind of this threshold temperature that um, prolonged exposure to that or higher um, will kill cells basically it causes like tissue death um and so it could be um that you've kind of found some sort of threshold temperature that you know just radiant heat pelting down on the stem will kill the cambium yeah um, yeah 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 and and maybe 60 degrees celsius i don't know what that is in fahrenheit but that's, yeah, I like, I need to do the conversion. that's like really freaking hot <laughs> Yeah, because I think when we hit peak temperature, 117 is like 48 degrees Celsius. But if you think about um, the surface that that kind of sun contacting and sitting on at peak heat, maybe the temperature did reach 60 degrees Celsius. I don't know. Yeah, just looked oh, it up. It's 140. 140. Yeah, yeah, 140. Yeah, Lonnie, Lonnie uh, just did the math. Yeah, I would have no doubt. I mean, uh, we just hit 100 degrees and surface temperature on a lot of things was 120 degrees Fahrenheit when we were at 100, 105 degrees. So at 117 degrees to reach 140, yeah, that seems totally likely. And we saw complete, yeah. complete, complete death complete death of the tissue. I mean, non-negotiable. Okay. Yeah. And it was yeah. orientation specific, which was what was so fascinating. It was at peak heat from the West sun, uh, anywhere that it touched died. It was, it was, it was like so devastating and also so fascinating at the same time. Wow. Yeah. Well, circling back to you on your question, I think you were asking like with the junipers and the redwoods, if they're not having the resin ducts in their wood, like how are they getting, you know, their heartwood built yeah. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's just um, the, the wood um, like that year's, okay, so you have your stem, right? And there's a like a boundary between the heartwood and the sapwood. And so it's basically like programmed cell death um, in, so wood by definition is dead, like it's dead secondary xylem cells. 
But within the stem of the tree, there are living cells, living parenchyma cells, like thin wall, just kind of like worker cells. And they're concentrated in um, the vascular rays of the stem that if you look at like the cross section of a tree um, or like a stump or something, they would almost look like um, spokes on a bike wheel. Um, and so the xylem cells are oriented for vertical movement, like going up and down the tree, whereas the um, vascular rays are oriented for lateral movement. So moving stuff between the pith at the center of the stem and then the bark, moving stuff that way. And so those um, living cells of the vascular rays are more expensive metabolic metabolically for the tree to maintain. And so it doesn't, there's not that much of it, but um, the sapwood has maybe like 30% living cells of the, these um, vascular rays, whereas the heartwood is like totally dead. And so metabolically, that sapwood is more expensive than heartwood. So the tree will only maintain the amount of sapwood that it needs to service its leaves, whatever kind of like crown area it has. And the leaves are the most expensive thing on the tree in terms of water like water demand and so there's this really tight relationship between sapwood thickness and leaf area on the tree like you can like model it and stuff so it's a really tight relationship and so at that boundary between the heartwood and the sapwood every year some of the photosynthate so the leaves are up doing their thing photosynthesizing making sugars some of that from that year is transported you know down through the phloem tissue and then it's laterally moved in the stem from the phloem just outside of the xylem inward towards the pith to that boundary between the heartwood and the sapwood. And there it can be used to um, kind of convert um, like the sapwood to the heartwood. Wow. Um, by loading up the set, by loading up the sapwood with what? So the, the photosynthate coming from the leaves um, can move to that heartwood sapwood boundary and be involved um, to sort of fund or fuel the conversion of heartwood to, of, sorry, of sapwood to heartwood. So a lot of times that involves just the deposition of all of these secondary metabolites, like kind of gnarly chemicals that are just kicking around the plant. It can be like a waste dump ground um, to get those um, potentially harmful compounds and I'm not like a chemist so I don't know like you know different tannins um, and things like that that will then be or fungicides like d different things that would be laid down to convert that heart that sapwood into heartwood and you'll see the color change and then um, if you look at it under a microscope it's like all of the little xylem cells they're basically plugged like they're they're non-functioning hydraulically all of the bordered pits the little pores in the xylem cells are all gunked up with these kind of compounds. And so that's how um, that that can work. It was really interesting. It was um, my PhD advisor was in town and I saw him briefly. He was showing me some preliminary data that he had um, looking using C14, like um, the radioactive version of um, the carbon isotope and um, using that to look at trying to pinpoint like you know, is it in that heartwood sapwood boundary, um, what sugars are being used to kind of like support that conversion to like, you know, be the ATP, the energy or whatever, to, to make that conversion from sapwood into heartwood. And so using stable isotopes, he was able to basically see that, yep, okay, so a tree ring that was produced 100 years ago, so maybe, so maybe your sapwood is 100 years thick. So moving 100 years into the sapwood is a ring of wood that was produced like 100 years ago. But when it goes to convert into sap into heartwood, 
from sapwood, so the innermost layer of functional sapwood, the oldest layer of functional sapwood, if you will. Um, if you isotopically look at kind of the nature of the chemicals in that heartwood, it, using isotopes, you can date that like it was, um, it was created, the photosynthate was, that was used to, to create that heartwood was from that year that it became heartwood, if that makes sense. It's kind of hard to explain. No, but. That's, yeah, it makes perfect sense. That's amazing. So you yeah. can tell the year it went from sapwood to heartwood. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. That's super interesting. And, yeah. and, 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 and I'm assuming there's a fairly routine transition of sapwood to heartwood just the same as your leaf mass directly correlates and, and you can model leaf mass to sapwood productivity uh, to support that transpiration and also the product of photosynthates that gives rise to the next round of sapwood, right, for a tree to continue growing. I'm a, I wonder if there is an alteration to the transition of sapwood to heartwood based on environmental conditions, or if that is also a modelable thing that is predictable in terms of the rate of transition from sapwood to heartwood. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question, and I think this, we're getting a little out of my wheelhouse. Like, I don't I don't personally study this. You know, the heart the heart, I haven't done any studies looking at heartwood. You know production. an awful lot about it for not having studied <laughs> it. <laughs> but um, Steve Sillett has done a ton of work, like um, quantifying heartwood and looking at the rates of heartwood production in like young redwoods compared to old redwoods. Um, and it's a really hot topic right now, just because of it being redwood superpower, if you will. Right. Um, uh, and then also with all the buzz about, you know, trying to maximize our terrestrial carbon sink, you know, the strength of that. So redwood having this really rot resistant heartwood, it's um, a really long term way to store the carbon. So you have the carbon stored in the heartwood while the tree is standing, which could be for millennia. And then once that tree falls, again, it could take millennia for that thing to like decompose and that carbon that was locked up in the wood to get back into the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and so it's definitely like a hot topic, um, you know, how, how, what are the environmental factors contributing to different rates of heartwood production, um, all sorts of things. That's fascinating. So, I mean, just coming back to your wheelhouse, how are redwoods doing right now? Um, they're doing pretty well. Yeah, we had um, here in California um, a pretty epic drought, uh, 2012 to 2016, kind of depending on like where you are in the state. But there's there, this multi-year, pretty intense drought, you know, set all these historic, broke all these historical records. Um, and a lot of trees, like extreme mortality in the Southern Sierras, um, it got a lot of press, um, you know, the forests were dying. But Redwood did pretty well during that drought. Um, yeah, and there, I think it was, you know, redwoods, they go from uh, like around Santa Cruz, California, Big Sur area north to just um, a few miles into Oregon. And so across that latitudinal range, like going from north to south, there were differences in how redwood responded to that drought. Um, in the southern portion of the range, it was more vulnerable to the drought. And in the northern range, it was more resistant to the drought. Eventually, um, even in the northern range, you know, there was some loss of vigor after, say, like in the fourth year of successive drought. Um, but they were pretty resilient, meaning that once the drought was over, that vigor was um, pretty quick to return. 
whereas the redwoods in kind of the southern portion of the range and even a little bit in the mid portion of the range, they didn't seem quite as resilient. So we're in a climate refuge in northwestern California. We're in a temperate rainforest and it, it things, I mean, it's definitely getting hotter, and it, but it, it is kind of buffered by the Pacific Ocean right there. It's kind of this cool little ha- micro habitat in this region um, of cool moisture. So they, they seemed, the redwoods seemed to be doing pretty well. Yeah, that's interesting. When I was down, I, I climbed a old growth redwood on private property down at the top of Highway 17 between Los Gatos and Santa Cruz. It's called oh, the cool. grand, it's called the grandfather tree. And when I was down there climbing, uh, there was a vascular researcher who was climbing it with me, doing her own research. I, I was climbing it for a different reason. I was looking at um, uh, epiphytic epiphytic temperate plant growth in the canopy of redwoods. And there were some um, tan oaks that were growing in these rotted uh, recesses in the branches of the canopy of these old growth redwoods. And so we were looking, you know, because we obviously focus on all of these different environments that create these stunted but ancient trees. And these tan oaks were like 30, 40 years old, and they were only, you know, like this tall and like super contorted. It was really, it was, it was really something. Um, Yeah. And looking at the condition, like it was just right to funnel whatever rainfall, like, fell into this and then there's decomposing organic debris of the wood rotting where the seed took uh took root but anyways um uh hannah was talking about the vascular researcher she was talking about uh cavitation of the of the cavitation is when the 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 water chain is broken correct and you Mm -hmm. get she was talking about cavitation in the redwoods in the southern boundary and and how they were starting to look at cavitation being a more common issue and and she had even said that some people and she had not experienced this but some people reported in the redwoods in the southern zone being able to hear the cavitation occur because it was almost like you could hear the water just like falling from this height when that embolism broke the chain. Uh, and I don't know if that's true or not, but that like that, that to me was like such a dystopic thought to think that you could literally hear this chain of water break. And I don't know if you know anything about that. Yeah, I haven't personally heard that, but I did my master's with Steve Sillett um, back in the day. And so in um, anyway, he's mentioned to me that he, he, I feel like, and this was, you know, 15 years ago now, but I feel like he mentioned to me that he's heard embolism happening. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, okay. I, don't, I mean, I could be misremembering it was a while ago, but um, yeah, I, ha- I have heard that. Yeah. Well, Hannah studied with I Steve too. So, so maybe she got that from him. I don't know. You know, but anyways. Oh, was she a student of his? She was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's weird. I don't know her. Hannah, what's her last name? I, I'm trying to think of what her last name is. We we've we've tried to stay in touch with her, but then she went to Antarctica to work on some science down there and we sort of oh, lost okay. contact. Yeah. But we just happened to be in the same tree the same day. Uh oh, how weird. climbing for different <laughs> reasons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, yeah, really, really fun though. Any, um, I haven't seen any epiphytic tan oaks um in my climbing experience so that's really neat that you saw those and they're probably kind of bon- like bonsai yes that's <laughs> I mean, exactly it it's this like inherently. yeah because we look typically you know like the the junipers they they are contained in rock pockets in in solid rock you know solid granite in the rockies solid granite in the sierras and that's kind of the environment 
that gives rise to ancient stunted trees uh, in in the temperate regions for coniferous material in the Western United States and and for a lot of other places in Europe, etc. And that's like kind of the backbone of 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 old, old material for bonsai is like rock and conifers. Um, and so so we've spent a lot of time with that. So to think of an epiphytic, not necessarily a resource, but just an epiphytic occurrence of a stunted tree that's ancient and still small, it was like too good to be true. So we went down there to check it out and uh and it was pretty rock and roll. It was awesome to get to number one, climb a redwood, and number two, see this, you know, occurrence happening that I'd never I'd never witnessed. I mean, I've seen a lot of epiphytic growth of conifers in the Pacific Northwest because we're in that temperate rainforest kind of buffered environment um, that gives rise to the redwoods in northwestern California. I mean, it sort of extends up into Oregon and the Doug fir forests and whatnot. So there's a lot of hemlock and Doug fir and uh, western red cedar that interact and grow on each other, uh, you know, consistently. But I've never seen that um, in the redwoods, and I've certainly never seen an oak do something like that. Yeah, that's cool. It was cool. <laughs> that was very cool. So the redwoods are doing good, though. I mean, like, I, I I read I just uh, I read a little little um, bit um, before we started talking and and there's like a fact here that 95 plus percent of current redwoods are second growth forests and I'm curious does that mean places like Prairie Creek and Jed Smith are second growth forests or are those OG old growth like. There? I'm confused. OG heavy old growth. Okay, cool. All right. So we're still, so you're still getting, there's still like a limited, but there is access to what an old growth forest, redwood forest looks like still. Yeah, pretty much like all old growth redwood forests are protected at this point. Cool. Um, I mean, yeah. So what we have places like um, Humboldt Redwood State Park, Prairie Creek Redwood State Park, Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park, like all those places, um, parts of Redwood National Park, um, those are mere woods, you know, those are all protected. And that's what we have left that um, wasn't logged during, you know, the heyday of commercial logging. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, you know, they came through and cut like 95 plus percent of the old growth forest that was here um, and so we have you know this really small percentage of it that's left mm -hmm. um, and so the vast you know redwood its range is really restricted um, it's like a, a very they call it a fog belt species um, to, uh, so you know again that kind of big sur to southern oregon right along the coast um, it's a really narrow natural range you can plant redwood you know you see it in the central valley and stuff <laughs> on the side of the highway or right. whatever you can plant it um and it can it can grow outside of its natural range but its natural range um is really restricted um and so within that already kind of narrow range the bulk of the forest um is what's kind of cropped up in the wake of commercial logging so in the commercial logging it wasn't pretty back in the day you know it was clear-cut and then um, redwood sprout. So a lot of times it, you know, it'll sprout back. And then they also would aerially seed a lot. So fly over with planes and like just dump a bunch of um, conifer seeds. And it was often like a mix, you know, it was a lot of Doug fir and things that maybe weren't so dominantly represented in the native forest that was there that they cut down. Um, anyway, so what's cropped up in, you know, since that happened um, are, are these really dense second growth stands or dog hair thickets. Sometimes people call them. Hmm. Um, 
So <laughs> yeah, like so that's that's a lot of the a lot of the range uh, for redwood are these kind of dense forests that are sort of stagnant. Um, the trees are are sort of suppressed and growing with a lot of competition. Right. Yeah. What? How? How does that work? Because I mean, like you know, I, uh, Susan Samard, you know, talked about the mother tree and this microbial highway and like trees supporting each other and it being community, not competition. And then we're talking about this aerial, you know, overly dense, unnatural seeding. And suddenly now we do have a competition-based forest. Like, w- w- where does it move from competition to community-based and from community-based to competition-based? Is that a natural versus a man-made problem that creates that duality? That's a, you know, I, I think a really hard question to answer. I mean, there's just so many nuances, I think. I mean, Right now, there's definitely, you know, the age old dialogue between like, oh, facilitation versus competition, you know, are the neighbors helping their tree? Or are they competitors? Right. Um, kind of. So, And I think that the, you know, really context matters kind of. And so you have to look at it on a kind of situation by situation basis. But I think with, say, for the second growth redwood forest, it's pretty safe to say that those forests are experiencing like suppressed conditions. So if you go in and you thin a bunch of the neighbor trees, the residual trees that are left, you can measure, you know, their vigorous response to that reduction in competition. Um, suddenly there's more light available. There's more water available. There's more soil nutrients available. There's physically more space available, you know, to grow. <laughs> um, and so, uh, So, yeah, there's a lot of restoration efforts underway right now at kind of the landscape scale for a lot of the Coast Redwood Range, where because it is a man-made problem, I mean, it's wonderful to just be like, well, you know, wilderness, like whatever, hands off, like, you know, nature will sort this out. But this is a a man-made problem Mm -hmm. due to clear cutting and then, you know, things like aerially seeding, um, where you have this sort of unnaturally dense forest composition and also maybe a mix of species that wouldn't have been there if they hadn't been aerially seeded in or they're overrepresented in terms of what they would have been um, historically on the landscape and not to say that you always need to be targeting like history as your as like your goal for what you want to restore things to but if we do look at kind of old growth forest stand structure for redwoods as like one possible target for to get back to towards that anyway, um, it, it it does mean that um, humans probably want to be involved with trying to accelerate the development of these mature forest characteristics because it is a human created kind of phenomenon that we're dealing with right now, and especially when you think about fire risk and you know increasing droughts for in terms of frequency and severity, it it'd be good to do our part to try to. Um, make it as dreamy as possible (laughs) for the residual trees and try to foster, you know, healthy, productive forests, especially, you know, carbon storage, all that kind of stuff. Um, If we can, yes, you take out some trees, but then the trees that are left behind are um, better at sequestering and storing the carbon. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. That's so interesting because there is just like a pragmatic consideration that I guess I haven't ever realized of just physical space. There's only so much moisture in the soil system. There's only only so many nutrients from the decomposing debris that are going to be available. And if you have a natu- an unnaturally overly dense seed population, especially when you're talking about species that would not be represented in that kind of population, you sort of have a recipe for failure of all of the things that are present there. 
And I, I, I guess I never really considered that, but it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Wow. That's interesting. But it is a controversial subject. Yeah. I mean, like some people are like, Hey, listen, go hands off and let nature sort of figure it out. And, 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 and I think what I've experienced from people that are boots on the ground and really researching the subject matter is it's like, I'm sorry, that's not where we're at at this point in time. Like that's, that, that's a great idea. And I love the utopic nature of it, but that's not where we're at. Well, and just also like, you know, Redwood is really shade tolerant. Like it, it does great in full sun, um, but it's extremely shade tolerant. So um, in the way that forests develop, you, you can kind of think of it as they call it stand dynamics, but it's like, there's this, stage in forest development called stem exclusion and it's basically where they're duking it out like you have the stems the trees and they're competing and there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers and so during the stem exclusion phase like the forest will self-thin and the winners will rise supreme you know and become the overstory but um because redwood is so shade tolerant that could take centuries you know it's not some shade intolerant pine that's going to croak in a few years of shade um the redwood could bide its time for decades centuries you know um in the deep dark understory so um to try to fast track you know that stem exclusion phase basically go in with chainsaws you know and yeah it is it is really controversial um especially because a lot of um the lands where restoration is being done are on public land. So it's like national and state parks and people visiting national and state parks are like, what, you know, mm-hmm. chainsaws in the parks, what are you guys doing? You know, trying to make money off the you know, natural resources, <laughs> right. Right. whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Like, it's, you know, we're trying to improve forest um, resilience and vigor. So there's sometimes I'm surprised. I'm just like, how did you guys not get the memo? Like this is, this is forest health. You know, it is, it's restoration. You know, we're trying to help the forest. This isn't, it's not even like really merchantable timber Mm -hmm. um, that is being cut. One of the foresters up at Redwood National Parks is like, what does he call it? He calls it like, toothpick national park you know it's like it's like you know, this national park and it's like redwood national park and you think of these majestic towering old growth trees um or old trees in an old growth forest but like really the vast majority of the parkland are actually these dog hair thickets of these tiny little stems um with this little tuft of foliage at the top because there's like no space they're all so jammed in there they just have these tiny little underdeveloped crowns they look like little q-tips or or something right um, so anyway um yeah, interesting. yeah got to go in there but for we had um there's this program called redwoods rising that is a collaboration with save the redwoods league and then redwood national and state parks um among other partners but those are kind of the main players and i think we're in our sixth year right now um and the cal poly humble is also involved with it and um over the next 30 years we're trying to do restoration thinning on 70,000 acres of second growth redwood forest so it's a huge like landscape scale undertaking of restoration it's really unprecedented it's i mean it's like the prow of the ship, you know, doing landscape scale restoration projects is a really big deal. But um, this summer they were doing some thinning in a really high profile area on the way out to Fern Canyon. And so they were worried about the public, you know, freaking out about seeing all this logging happening in the park. Um, and so we actually hired like 
two interpretation apprentices for Redwoods Rising to kind of be like camped by the restoration activities um, to be an interface with the passing by public that like, hey, hey, you know, this is actually like, here's a pamphlet on, you know, forest restoration and like what's going on. So hopefully, you know, I think the public are getting on board, but there is surprisingly still some pushback. Yeah, 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 it makes sense. I, I mean, uh, this was a big discussion of how to handle the reforestation of the big heavy burns in the in the Sierras, you know, in Kings Canyon and uh, and Sequoia National Park, where like 20% of the giant sequoias burned over two years. And it's like, should we replant? And then some people are like, don't you dare touch it. And like, because it's a national park, like the public does weigh in, or at least there's a lot of personalities and thought processes that are weighing into those decisions. And like, I think for the scientists, the the gist of things that I got is that it was super, super frustrating because it was just like, hey, it doesn't work that way anymore. I'm sorry. We have adjusted or we have changed things too rapidly. And now we do have to make a decision like in the best interest of preserving this before the before things change to a degree that it's no longer salvageable. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I know, especially with like giant sequoia regeneration. I mean, with those fires that burned, that wasn't normal. Right. You know, that right. wasn't within the natural beast of fire. You know, we something different was created there due to the past hundred years of like land management practices and climate change, like all of it, you know, the perfect storm kind of coming together. But yeah, with regen stuff, especially in this climate, and if you've killed all the seed trees and killed all the seed bank because the fire was so severe, yeah. um, that, you, that kind of people do need to be involved there. <laughs> yeah, like the hole created in the, in the tree ecosystem was too large for it to ever naturally regenerate before things change, before the climate changes, because the trees are impacting those environments so significantly, uh, mm -hmm. from what I understand. But how, I mean, how are the redwoods doing in terms of fire susceptibility and um, just that like growing risk or um, their ability to tolerate the potentially increasing intensity of fires? Like, how's that working on the coastal in the coastal environment? Yeah, so down near Santa Cruz, um, a couple of years back, there were a bunch of fires um, that burned, you know, uh, mature redwood forests. And it was really alarming because we always think of them as being so fire resistant. Mm -hmm. um, but it basically looked just like death in the forest, you know. It was that Big Camp like, or Roaring Camp or what, what, what was that place called? That uh, really Near Butano State Park, am I saying it right? I um down down by Santa Cruz. I think it's I might be mispronouncing it, but Butano State Park is okay. at least phonetically what it looks like. Somewhere like right around there. Um and a colleague of mine is studying it, Save the Redwoods League is doing kind of a study down there. But from the pictures that I've seen, you know, initially it just looked like pure death. Like it was like all black, these standing ghosts. Um, but then because of Coast Redwoods like freakish ability to re-sprout, mm. um, they it seems like in the first two years post fire, everything is is re-sprouting like they just look like these little chia pets or something <laughs> <laughs> right on the ground from the brute like base yeah like i mean they're standing they're still alive so they're um, sprouting so from the trunk up up like yes. standing oh wow oh my gosh yeah, so they, they're like these standing like poodles almost like they're little foliar haircuts um but it's really interesting because all of the branches died so like 
it's basically you have the main axe, like the bowl, this the stem of the tree, right. and then it, and I haven't visited there yet, but um, from what I've seen of the pictures, it's like they just are all fuzzy and bright green and leafing out. So they they survived, but this is really going to change the canopy structure because all of those branches that they're leafing out with. Um, they're all going to be epicormic branches. So really shallowly rooted in the stem, like not originating from the pith um, where it's like normal branches that were created. Um, they're just different um, than the epicormic branches kind of structurally. So it'll be really interesting to see how that all plays out. But the, I think the thick bark of the coast redwood um, did do a pretty good job, at least from what we can tell of not having like a hundred percent mortality in these stands. That's unbelievable. That's crazy. That's yeah. so cool. I spent quite a bit of time in that portion of the Redwoods when I was in college um, before I really had like become passionate about bigger trees because I was like so infatuated with smaller trees at that time. But it, it, it left a huge impression on me. And I was really saddened when I heard that it burned. And like even... You know, even back when I was in college in the early 2000s, like leaf morphology on redwoods and like the form of the leaf in the lower branching versus the form of the leaf in the canopy of the tree and the, and the accumulation of like condensation as a water resource. I understand like you're researching water mobility in redwoods uh, on a pretty grand scale as one of your projects. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I've worked on that um, a fair bit. So I did my master's on with Steve Zillett looking at um, kind of on the vertical gradient in redwood trees, um, how leaf morphology changes and um, complementary to that work, someone else was looking at the anatomy and then I looked at the physiology. So pretty intimately involved with with an absurd amount of like attention to detail, you know, looking into the, um, like, um, looking into how leaves vary throughout redwood trees. And then what does that look like kind of on the outside morphologically? What does that look like on the inside anatomically? And then what does that mean physiologically? Um, like how do those leaves differ? Um, so I, I did a, a body of work on that, um, back for my master's degree. And then my, colleague Alana Chin, who interestingly was in Steve Sillett's lab. We were his two grad students at the same time. So we go way back. Um, and she has, for her dissertation work, done a ton of work on um, looking at the nitty gritty details of foliar water uptake um, and, and the different mechanisms and pathways for that um, and in Coast Redwood. And so I've been involved with that work too, but I haven't been leading it, but been pretty involved with it. Can you give me the quick and dirty on what you found out about just general water movement in Redwoods day and night? Uh, and the reason that this is interesting to me is because when we were when we were when we were working on the cone collection project in the sequoias, they were also uh, at the same time working on vascular research. And what they were finding was that the giant sequoia kind of compartmentalized water movement throughout different sections of the tree. And they can be moving water in different directions in different sections of the tree at the same time. And I just, that just blew my mind because like I was always under the impression this was a relatively simple system driven by transpiration out of the leaf mass, obviously in the canopy of these super tall coastal trees. I understand condensation collection and the inability to raise water against the force of gravity. Um, 
in the cohesion tension theory, but like I didn't realize it applied to the Sierras and the same sort of condensation accumulating in the canopy and the sequoias in the Sierras. But I also had never dreamed that there would be different directions of water mobility at the same time within one singular vascular system. So I'm just curious if you could give us the quick and dirty of what you've found out in terms of water movement in redwoods, anything interesting, abnormal, or just incredibly fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, that's the tall order, the quick and dirty. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I mean, you can take as long as you want. I, I'm like, this is a dream um, to talk to you about this because um, I love this stuff. I'm such a physio- physiology geek, even though it's like not my um, background. I think it's amazing. Rare, okay, that's a rare breed. Yeah, I know. Oh, weirdo. <laughs> Most people gloss over when I start to talk about this No, stuff. this is it. Um, this is so important. Okay, well, cool. I'll just kind of like prattle on then and so the things that I'll talk about are from stuff I've read like you know trying to be up on the literature and like who's doing what and then also my own work Um, and so I'll keep it to redwood specifically so I'm I'm interested in like tall trees and how they move water it's really fascinating and what what's up with their water use Um, but then I'll also throw in some stuff that's kind of cool about Sitka spruce and maybe some other redwood forest plants just because I think it's really neat so, um, so redwood in particular, and kind of how you're saying with the giant sequoia, and I haven't studied giant sequoia, um, uh, so I, I've just read about it and sure. stuff. But um, so for the coast redwoods, like you were saying for giant sequoia, um, water can move in the reverse direction. So you can typically think of the tree like a big straw that's slurping water up, like groundwater, um, soil water via the root system. And then it goes through, it's like slurped up through the tree and goes out through the leaves into the sky. So the tree is basically this straw connecting, you know, water in the earth to water in the sky. Mm -hmm. Um, but at night, um, typically I, I had mentioned that leaves are the biggest water cost, um, in the plant. Um, and so, and leaves want to have their stomata open during the day so that CO2 can come into the leaf and be fixed into sugar via photosynthesis in the presence of light. But in the absence of light at night, um, it makes no sense to have the stomata open to get CO2 in cause there's no light to fix it into sugar. And so plants generally will close their stomata at night to conserve water. Um, And so at night when they close their stomata, they can kind of equilibrate with whatever water is available to the root system. Um, And so you can picture like, um, like you're pulling a rubber band during the day when the tree is transpiring and that rubber band is the water column of water. But then picture like you stop pulling on the top end of that rubber band. Slowly that rubber band from the bottom up will shrink back up to the top of the tree. So that's the tree like inhaling water once it's closed its stomata. It's going to top up the levels, so Mm -hmm. to speak, and like get rehydrated overnight. Um, And so that's like the typical pattern that we see in trees. This isn't specific to redwood. Redwood has sort of um, as far as I can tell, like leaky stomata, they say at night, like there's still some sort of like nighttime transpiration that's happening that right. can be happening. Like stomata, it doesn't have like super tight stomatal control <laughs> um, across like taxa, you know, some, some are more militant with their stomatal regulation. That's amazing. Um, and, yeah. So I think redwood is classified as like leaky. Uh-huh, a little, <laughs> um, li- li- little loose on its water. It's just kind of like, yeah, we got water to spend. We're good. You know, little yeah, holes in the dam. No big deal. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
Um, so, so that's kind of happening. But then what we see, what red, what we've seen in Redwood, and um, I haven't done this, but uh, like other people who research this have found, is that when you do use sap flow sensors in the tree, these little needles that can use like a thermal gradient to detect how much water is flowing. So like this many liters of water per hour, you know, are going through this tree. Um, at night, they can measure reverse flow. Like it's like say what? Like are the data messed up? Nope, actually, like water is flowing the other direction, and that's presumably because of foliar uptake of water. So water, um, like fog, comes in in the afternoons and evenings in the summer, when um, it's our dry season in this Mediterranean climate, and kind of bathes the crowns of the trees in this atmospheric water. And the, the water um, like deposits on the leaves, and then it can be uptaken through the leaves. Um, and there's really cool stuff about that. Um, a lot of this work came from Todd Dawson at UC Berkeley. Um, and then that foliar uptake of water, you can see it like transfer all the way down the tree to, you know, if you have sap flow probes in at a meter height, like just ground level breast height, um, you can see that reverse flow happening at like m multiple heights throughout the tree. So that is one way that water at night can kind of be flowing the other direction, which is sort of weird. Um, so rehydrating from both, <laughs> from both equilibrating with whatever water is available to the root system, and then also equilibrating with water via this kind of shortcut by taking water in through the leaves. So it's also um, one thing that contributes to Redwood's crazy differences in leaf morphology, anatomy, and physiology throughout the vertical gradient is um, that hydrostatic tension, you know, 300 feet up in, in, the, in the tree that makes it really hard for cells to maintain turgor. And so under that strained turgor, um, the, the leaves become um, really reduced and there's physiological like complications associated with that. So most notably reduced photosynthetic capacity, which is kind of weird. Um, and the sun leaves at the top of the tree that actually they um, can have reduced photosynthetic capacity due to this stunted kind of like leaf morphology where the leaves of coast redwood at the top of a tall coast redwood look a lot like giant sequoia leaves. They're like really reduced and scale-like um, and they have lower photosynthetic capacity. And so it's kind of neat that the this species um, and other tall conifers too have adapted um, kind of this mechanism where they can shortcut that arduous path length of water from the soil all the way to the leaves and kind of tap this really local water source right there um, that is free of those complications of hydrostatic tension. So it's kind of neat physiologically too. It's almost like it checks and balances for the tree, right? Because it's like, okay, we're going to raise water 300 feet to your, to the foliage. We're going to, and that's our greatest expense. And we're not going to get the payoff because the surface area is decreased based on the leaf morphology, right? And the inability to maintain turgor so that we can't, that those, that foliage can't photosynthesize efficiently. So if the tree's system, energy system is going to continue to spin that resource, it's got to get paid back somehow. And the leaves at the top are like, all right, well, you know, we may not be able to photosynthesize, but we can give you some water and we can work this out. Like there's a, there's a deal that works for all of us here. And I think that's freaking fascinating. You know, it's like, it's like the tree yeah. bartering with itself and it's like, 
like, all right, you can't give me the same sugar starch productivity. You're still going to cost me, but you can cut down on the cost and I can deal with the lack of productivity. And then you're going to give us some water in return and we'll like keep you around. Cause like this does work out holistically in this really odd way that we didn't sort of anticipate, but we'll go ahead and take advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty fly. Um, that's amazing. That's ama- it's, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely yeah. amazing. Cause how much, I mean, they were saying that the giant sequoias are moving a thousand gallons of water a day through that tree. And, and they said that they had physically, you know, the root system of a giant sequoia being super shallow rooted, at least as far as like toppled trees show the structure of the root system of a giant sequoia. And I've seen the same thing with coastal redwoods, like a very shallow rooted tree, right? Like, they dug up the footprint of of a giant sequoia and they went like, I think some ridiculous, maybe six meters down or something. And they measured the quantity of water that was in that soil system. And they said it's physically impossible for this soil system to supply this tree with enough water to meet its daily water demands. There's something else going on here. Either the root system is structurally different than we anticipate and what we see when they fall over is not the totality of things or there's other mechanisms at play. And in the, in the sequoia research, they were finding that trees on rocky outcroppings had just as much moisture availability as trees growing next to waterways. And in some ways, the trees in the rocky outcroppings were more durable than the trees growing by the waterways themselves. And so like the the vascular research of the giant sequoias anyways, in my mind, is counterintuitive to what you would typically assume and anticipate. A tree growing next to water that needs a thousand gallons a day should be more durable, should be more uh, strong and tolerant of environmental conditions. And that's not actually what the research is showing. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Was that, is that Anthony Ambrose doing that? Yeah. And if I butchered any of that or misstated any of that, Forgive me, but it's like somewhere close to that as far as like what I understood and took from that conversation. And so I'm I'm looking at coastal redwoods and I'm seeing the same shallow root environment and I'm seeing similar like leaf morphology behavior and water transport from the apex down and the roots up. And so I'm wondering like, have those same kind of investigations of coastal redwoods been done where like you physically look at the footprint of the root system and the soil column that would support that and is the water there or not? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just so curious about all of this because it's, it's yeah. part of the magic, you know, like this is part of the mystery and what you said, the superpower of these trees. Yeah. I don't know of any studies. It's really hard. I mean, especially, you know, there's so little old, old growth forest remaining that it, it'd be like nigh on impossible to get permits right, right, to like if right. a root system of like an old growth, you know, like some 2000 year old tree or something. So, I mean, maybe if one has to be cut for something that could happen. Um, but yeah, I don't know of any work that's d- comparable work um, that's done that. Well, and I don't know but, if he excavated a root system. I think he might've just excavated the soil mass and then taken the water out of the soil mass that would technically oh, okay. or hypothetically. Okay. So I think that's how it was. But like, again, I want to be real careful. Like I could be totally talking uh, in the wrong direction. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. It, interestingly, it is a little bit like, you're saying like the trees, you know, the, the giant sequoia is growing near the waterway that had life, life was dreamy, you know, tons uh-huh. of water uh-huh. um, versus like, you know, the giant sequoia growing in the granite that has like the hard knock life, you right. know, and that the hard knock life one was actually tougher, right. like, or, you know, it was doing better. And that actually makes sense because um, trees that grow under really wet conditions 
will typically have really lo like lower water use efficiency. Like they're more cavalier with their water use uh, just because they've had it good uh, um, versus the one that had to like duke it out under these harsh conditions. <laughs> you know? They at the leaf level have um, higher water use efficiency. Mm -hmm. Like the leaves have developed under those drier conditions. And so they're more miserly with their water use basically. So it kind of, I mean, it, to, to try to like, I don't know, shed light on you know what might be at play there also um like wood that develops under water stress compared to non-water stress will be more resistant to cavitation so like the giant sequoias that are growing in the harsher granitic kind of um soil environment might have wood that anatomically is inherently more resistant to embolism and cavitation which might make it kind of more drought resistant and resilient compared to the giant sequoia that was you know growing in ample water and has wood that's more vulnerable to cavitation and at the leaf level has lower water use efficiency so those might be some of the things happening now can i ask you something would the would the less the the decreased susceptibility to cavitation <sighs> have anything to do with the diameter of the tracheids and the xylem uh, cells? Like it, it is, is in underwater stress, does it actually shrink the size of the xylem so that there's less opportunity for that? Or like there's just less capacity for the cell to reach full size and therefore it does ultimately sort of trickle down to a lesser susceptibility to cavitation? It, it probably has something to do with that. Like under the drier conditions, again, coming back to that idea of turgor, it's probably harder for those xylem cells when they're being created during like cell elongation phase or whatever mm -hmm. for them to fully expand. And so net net, you have a smaller cell when it, when everything is said and done. And then also, um, so it can have to do with kind of the like proportional like length to width ratios of the tracheid cells themselves. And then also, um, can have to do with like the bordered pits, the number of bordered pits, these little pores that are in the tracheids for lateral water movement. Um, and so, yeah, like under drier conditions, the wood that is produced anatomically is going to be smaller diameter cells, uh, xylem cells, and those will be inherently less vulnerable to cavitation. That is so fascinating. And I'm assuming leaf morphology too, under drier conditions that your leaf structure, uh, stomata count or potential cuticle thickness would all be possible physiological traits that would change that would shift sort of the miserly nature of water conservation versus the gluttonous consumption because it's available. Yeah, I think, I mean, I haven't looked at all of those things, but those are considered plastic traits, you know, like okay. cuticle thickness, um, how many like layers of, you know, um, palisade parenchyma are going to be produced. Right. Like all, all of there's, <laughs> there's a whole like suite of things that can vary. Um, and as far as like leaf structure goes, um, depending on what the environmental conditions are like. Yeah, interesting. So there's a note, there's a note uh, about, uh, taxodium, disticum, bald cypress, and and redwood having some sort of like nuanced association with wet roots, tolerance of that kind of circumstance. And I just wanted to ask you because we we also work a lot with taxodium. It's a common bone size species, but more than that, um, you know, taxodium is another one of these species that obtains ancient status that has a significantly historical capacity to tell the tale of of climatology through their tree rings uh on the black river and and it's a species that i'm i've been 
investing more and more time studying and trying to understand. So when I saw that there was some sort of association of root behavior or, or comparable um, condition, I was like really interested by that. Yeah, I don't know a ton about bald cypress. Um, I know redwood initially was um, like named taxodium. I, I'm pretty like they thought it okay. was in. I think I'm I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I think as far as like the nomenclature goes for sequoias and virens, it initially I think was put in taxodium. Like they thought it was a bald cypress. Um, the leaves look really similar. Uh, so they definitely have like a lot in common, and then. Redwood is really tolerant to having its roots submerged in water, um, like with when it's growing in like these alluvial floodplains um, in certain portions of its range. Um, you know, the some species are really intolerant of having their roots flooded, but redwood seems to tolerate it pretty well. And actually, say like a huge you know hundred year flood comes through or something and deposits feet of silt, um, redwood seems to be able to kind of like shift its root system. Like it'll, um, it seems like it, it's pretty plastic um, in. In, in that way, it can shift its root system up to accommodate for the fact that it just had like five feet of silt deposited on top of the roots. Um, but yeah, bald cypress is kind of a, like a mystery to me. It produces those weird knees, mm -hmm. I guess, which are to try to like help the roots breathe or something. I don't know. It's a bit of an enigma. <laughs> and they're and they're still like trying to figure that out. Yeah, the 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 knees thing, the taxodium thing. I mean, what you're saying basically about redwoods is they have the ability to sort of ground layer their root system so that they don't experience crown rot and they're able to continue to adapt to these changing environments. And like, it's just fascinating. Every time that I've gone to the redwoods, you know, their hexaploidal sort of structure, making them more adaptable. The fact that they can hold like, basically they have split personalities and they can like shift their personality to the conditions of the environment as it's been, as I, I, I think I've kind of understood that and like broadly tried to apply that concept. Like they, they have that malleability and adaptability, but it, it sounds to me too, like redwoods that maybe grow in a less water available area would have more durability like the giant sequoias. And I th just think about some of the tallest redwoods existing mo more on slopes and in canyons and on hillsides than in the flat ground. Is there any, is there any truth or is there any uh, sort of like applicability to that information there? Um, yeah, I think I'm not, I'm not like a monument tree expert. So I'm not sure like where, where all of the absolute tallest redwoods, you know, like how, how it shakes out if they're upland or on the lowlands, like, um, but it does seem like the, what I noticed most, if, if your question is about like kind of the upland redwoods versus the lowland dur redwoods. Dur durability as well as like height and capacity to facilitate that height and leaf morphology, just like taking everything we've just talked about and then cramming it back into because the fascination of redwoods is this is the tallest tree on earth, right? And then it's like, okay, well, when you look at the tallest tree, is the tallest tree a product of ideal posh circumstances or is it the product of having to tough it out and developing a ruggedness that gives it the capacity to defy that kind of gravitational odd? I think it's the latter, <laughs> like mm -hmm. that um, the upland ones have it a little bit tougher, mm -hmm. you know, than the ones that are growing down in the alluvial flats where um, I think it's like a little bit, I don't know, more perfect or idyllic. Right. Um, from <laughs> right. the, the alluvial flat for redwood forests are typically like 
redwood is really dominant. Whereas in, as you get up into the more upland forests, um, you'll see much more of a mix of other conifers growing with the tall redwoods, implying that like they don't necessarily always have in that um, environment, the competitive upper hand, you know, mm-hmm. like it's a little tougher for them. How do, how do you know how old a redwood is as a, as a redwood researcher? How do, how do you know without taking tree rings or can you know without taking tree rings? I don't think you can know. Like it's, I mean, you would think there would be some sort of like easy allometry that you could use. Like, oh, if it's this diameter at the base, it's this old, but it can vary so much just genetically across individuals. Like, you know, you grew really tall. I didn't grow really tall. Like, so it can vary just genetically. I feel like there's a lot of variation. And then um, also with environmental conditions um, and forest stand structure conditions, um, it it can be really hard to tell. So yeah, I've asked Steve a bunch of times, I'm like, come on, there's got to be like, with all your data, you've got to have like some, even if it's only like an R squared of 70, like 0.7, like give me what you got, you know? And he's like, no, it's really weak. Like bark thickness or this is where- is like, re, could reiterations be an indication of age? I mean, you can definitely tell like, oh, that tree's been around a while. That's like a mature old tree, but I don't think you can slap a number on it. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I feel like only like, there's this really cool tree that just comes to mind that I think it's only like 700 years old, but it looks, it's like crazy, you know, and it has like seven reiterated trunks and it, it it's okay. um, like, it's just is really variable in terms of how long it's going to take for um for that for that um type of structure and those kind of uh, mature characteristics to develop one thing i forgot to say when you're talking about water with the redwood trees and like how that's going i was going to mention too it's kind of cool there was some work that was done out of uc davis um that showed that redwood can actually absorb water through its bark Mm. um which is sort of neat in that it can reverse embolisms um, this water uptake through the bark. So it's just kind of another way. So if we see at night that water is moving the other direction, uh, possibly due to foliar water uptake, um, but possibly it's also just like inherently throughout the, the tree crown. If, if water is being able to be absorbed through the bark, that could be a substantial amount of water that's being uptaken. It's kind of like tapping the local water source 300 feet up rather than the arduous slurp of water from the, the soil <laughs> the slurp of um, water <laughs> so there's, there's you know, like that happening too which is sort of neat and then that kind of begs the question of like oh well is that happening in other conifers too because redwood is typically pretty thick barked you know i mean not on its branches per se but it seems like for thinner barked species like say something like sicka spruce it could probably could be happening really widespread um crown water uptake through the bark as well although it hasn't been looked at but that would be kind of neat yeah, it's interesting that you say that because um, the lab that we're that we're working with, uh, it's called Apical Ag Solutions, but um, they've done a tremendous amount of research on nutrient uptake through different application methodologies, and um, oh, cool. and when we do foyer applications of nutrition based on maybe the nutrition having a pH that we wouldn't want to treat the small containerized environment of the root system with, particularly iron or molybdenum or some of these like trace elements we'll apply them through the foyer application, but we don't just apply it to the foliage. We apply it to the branches and to the trunk because they've found that just trunk, just spraying the trunk and trunk application uh, across the board on a majority of plants is a major uptake mechanism and huh. and really serves the, the plant well. And we have absolutely uh, observed that and also been able to then take uh, leaf samples and 
digest their nutrient uptake from the different application methods and can beyond a shadow of a doubt verify that it's happening um at least on the small scale that we're functioning at but that all of this science for them came from applying it on larger scale uh, macro environment trees so it's like pretty awesome to understand all of all of these things and like see it working on this like small scale you know this is like the past yeah. year for me has been a has been like a total revolution uh in what i thought to be true about trees Oh, nice. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. It is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me how reiterations are formed then? Because reiterations, uh, my first experience was in Prairie Creek of seeing redwoods. And I didn't okay. know, I did not know how lucky I was uh, when I was looking at Prairie Creek. I, I personally find it to be the most powerful redwood grove. Uh, it seems to me to be the oldest redwood grove and if neither of those are true, it certainly seems to be the most character-filled redwood grove for me because of the reiterative nature of those trees. If you compare it to Jed Smith or some of the other groves that have more maybe cylindrical tall trunks but don't have the same branching structure as Prairie Creek. Yeah. And as you talked about the epicormic growth of the fire uh, devastated um, Santa Cruz area, I'm thinking, okay, these are growing on the exterior portion of the tree. They don't have that central anchor into the pith and the major vascular system. I'm assuming reiterations have to be prepared long in advance to have the capacity to attach to that tree, have the structural capacity to create the tissue, as well as having the water hydrology to be able to now grow vertically as a branch. Yeah. So like in a nutshell, my understanding of how reiterations are formed, it's like, say a neighbor tree falls or there's some sort of injury to the tree. Um, a storm happens and, you know, the top breaks out or a neighbor hits it in a, a branch breaks or there's some sort of like opening of real estate um, in the growing space around, say, some branch. And so you have a branch that used to be growing horizontally as a branch. And now suddenly there's a lot more light. Um, hitting all of the little dormant meristems that have been left behind on that branch and um, like lateral meristems that are dormant. Redwood has a lot of um, meristematic tissue, just kind of inherently. You can see it in the burls that it creates and also its sprouting ability. So some sort of an injury happens. You have a branch that used to be growing horizontally and now above it a lot more like some real estate has been opened up. So it's getting more light to those buds that are sort of dormant and they will kind of perk up and the branch will now, because there's available growing space above it, will start growing vertically. And so thereby a horizontal branch just became a vertical reiterated trunk, mm -hmm. you know, dot, 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 give it 10 years um, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I think that's like kind of the basics of how that works. And then we would start calling that original branch that was growing horizontally, like in the lingo, we could call that now a limb that is supporting a reiterated trunk. Interesting. Um, and so that can happen a bunch of times, like the longer you're around, the more times you um, kind of interact with disturbance. So in whatever that looks like. So, so then, although not able to be labeled with age, reiterations would kind of be a real loose metaphorical representation of an age because the longer you're around the more disturbances are going to trigger reiterative growth yeah exactly um and it could be around our house here we've noticed just because we've been here a while now like 
Oh my gosh, the squirrels up here, man. They're like topping, they, they're messing with the April Maristem. Like they'll go and like, I'm like, oh, are they, are they like these engineers of like, you know, crown complexity? Oh my God, <laughs> that'd be so amazing if that was true. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of nuts. They definitely have like taken the dominant top off a few of trees. Oh my gosh. Just like they girdle. I don't know, it's crazy. Anyway, so, I mean, we think most commonly of, oh, disturbance, like, you know, a storm breaks out the top of the tree or a neighbor breaks a branch, but like, it could also be other ecology things like a squirrel nibbling off the main leader and then some side leader is going to take over, you know, kind of thing. So there's also that type of stuff that could be at play. That's awesome. So multiple, multiple, yeah, multiple ways that that occurs. But I wanted to ask you, I've been asking you all of these questions what would you want to tell people about redwoods? Like, what are you excited to talk about as somebody who's studying these trees? Like, what is a question that you don't get asked that you would love to be asked and answer? Hmm. <laughs> okay. What What makes Lucy what, what makes Lucy tick these days? Um. Yeah, I guess I'm really interested in um, kind of water movement in these big trees and. Um, kind of what you're talking about with the giant sequoia that, you know, in these different, it's compartmentalized maybe and like in different parts of the tree, water can be moving in different directions at the same time. Like what is going on um, with these huge organisms on our planet that they're kind of hard to study. Like they're so big. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious about what's going on with their water use. Um, so I'd like to, I, some of my work, um, I use stable isotopes in water to try to trace water. So water has like a fingerprint different water sources can can have these different fingerprints so to speak with isotopes and so i think it'd be really interesting um to kind of further study that in coast redwood and you know um especially looking at like different proportions of fog water or bark absorbed water um or soil water um are you know are they tapping into groundwater are they tapping into stream water i'm pretty interested in in those types of questions um and there's this phenomenon called um, hydraulic lift that again, kind of um, David or uh, Todd Dawson kind of put this on the map, uh, at least in my point of view. He's the first person that I kind of read his work about it. I was like, wow, that's really cool. But basically, like large trees that are deep rooted can uptake deep soil water, and then um, if the top soil layers are really dry, the water will will leave the tree root system and hydrate those upper soil levels. Um, so it's like doing this community service sort of for for its neighborhood by um, tapping this deep water and then making it available, presumably to more shallowly rooted plants. And so um, in a really wet system like the Coast Redwood Forest, that's probably not happening necessarily, like hydraulic lift, just because the soil profile is really wet near the top, just because we get so much rain. But what I think is really interesting and I think might be happening, and I'd love to study it more and talk with people about it more and brainstorm um, is I think there could be sort of like a new spin on hydraulic lift happening where um, a lot of these tall conifers in the temperate rainforest, and it's not just the conifers, like cottonwoods can do it and maples and alders, but they make these adventitious roots in the canopy. So, you know, 200 feet up, you'll see a root growing out of the branch and it's like, oh, that's weird. And so I think kind of going into, it's complicated being tall. It's hard to slurp water up 300 feet. You're in a temperate rainforest. Hey, 
like novel idea, let's tap the local water source up here mm -hmm. and bypass all of those complications. And so I think there's different avenues that um, local water is being used by these tall giants. So via foliar absorption, via bark absorption, via adventitious root absorption. Um, and then when you couple the presence of these adventitious roots in the tree with those epiphyte mats that are just perpetually wet so there's right. like salamanders living in these epiphyte mats of like ferns and mosses and liverworts and lichens um, implying that they're pretty darn wet all the time considering that the salamanders don't have lungs and have to breathe through wet skin mm -hmm. so it just implies that this is like a perpetually wet environment up in the crowns of these giants and then with the adventitious roots there, I think it'd be really cool to do some sort of like studies where you use isotopically labeled water and kind of demonstrate um, that there could be this really cool commensal relationship. Like we typically think of epiphytes as, um, as commensal, but maybe it's more mutualistic than is often given credit. Like we, the typical way to think about epiphyte ecology is sort of like, oh, the epiphytes are not hurting the tree, but um, you know, it's it's like a one-way street. Like the epiphytes are benefiting from the partnership via increased real estate, um, but the tree's like not really benefiting or being harmed. Mm -hmm. um, but I think actually the tree might be benefiting a lot from those epiphytic communities um, in terms of their influence on the microclimate up there, making it more moist. So dropping the vapor pressure deficit, which might let the stomata stay open longer. And then also with those perpetually wet epiphyte mats, that maybe the adventitious roots are tapping that. Um, and so that would be a really cool thing to see that um, epiphytes were influencing host tree physiology. But then going back to hydraulic lift, we could think of this as like possibly even a new spin on hydraulic lift, where if the epiphyte mats did dry out, heaven forbid, um, that possibly the tree that's tapped into soil water, a reliable water source, whereas the atmospheric environment can be much more desiccating and um, the epiphytes could dry out, maybe um, water would leave the host tree through the adventitious roots, thereby hydrating the epiphyte mat, if you follow. Ah, uh -huh, yeah, and good. In on, um, on um, hydraulic lift. Anyway. Woo, so like, that was good. Yeah, those are my ideas. And I like to like sit around and think about that. Totally. Oh my God, I love that you just did that. Uh, that was amazing. I mean, like, this is what I'm saying about bonsai, though. You know, it, it is totally commonplace for us to get trees to grow roots out of a trunk all the yeah. way up. Yeah. I mean, it's like the apex of a piece of nursery stock is cool and the rest of the tree's not. Okay, well, we'll, we'll air layer it. We'll air layer that tree and create a new tree off of roots we generate out of the trunk of the tree. Like, that's so commonplace that when I saw it, when I was up in the canopy of redwood and I saw roots growing near uh, an epiphytic mat, I was like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, redwoods have tons of meristematic tissue. They can literally produce a root anywhere on the tree very effortlessly. I see that. Where you've taken it a step further is you're like, okay, but those roots might have the ability to deposit water into that epiphytic mat to sustain that. And there's water conductivity through the, the bark. So that epiphytic mat might be, again, you're talking about a, a vapor gradient. And you're also just talking about a moisture source to capture atmospheric moisture and continue contributing it to the tree and maybe giving it back to the epiphyte. So now you have the symbiosis. That's Awesome. That was so good. Yeah. Very, yeah, very cool. Very cool. Now, I just want to ask you one more thing and then I know you got to go. Hydraulic lift. You're saying that 
Redwoods typically don't have to engage in this, but I think this has major implications potentially for explaining where the water comes from on a giant sequoia. And you're saying it's a shallow rooted tree, but somehow they have the ability to raise deep deep water up to the surface. How would a shallow rooted tree have the capacity to raise that water? Is it through capillary action and sort of what would you say? More or less depleting the water resource at the surface so that there is a natural gradient movement of water from higher concentration to lower concentration upwards against the force of gravity? Or like, how is that deep water getting up to the tree? Or do they have to have deep roots to capture that? I think they have to have deep roots okay. to capture it. Okay. But ha- I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm not like total expert on hydro. It's not like I've exhaustively poured over the literature. Sure. So, sure. you know, maybe people have investigated it in giant sequoia off the top of my head. I don't know about it. Um, but it's more like what I was saying, how Todd Dawson kind of put it on the map, at least for me, there were probably people before him, but he was the first one who I read his work. I was like, wow, this is such a cool idea. But he showed it um, with maples, like sugar maples initially. Mm. Um, and then I've seen it done with a lot of oak species. Yeah, um, makes sense. Getting so I think it's more species that are um, really deeply rooted and can tap a, a much deeper water source and then um, and bring that up and kind of as a, a community service. Um, for redwoods, though, where I'm talking or even like Sitka spruce, like where it'd be this new spin on hydraulic lift, it's not necessarily that the that the tree is super deeply rooted. Right. It's just that it's like tapped into the soil water and could possibly be like making that soil water available to the epiphyte mats if the epiphyte mats dried out. So water would passively leave through the adventitious roots down a water potential gradient, mm-hmm. like going from an area of higher moisture inside the adventitious root to an area of lower moisture outside of the adventitious root in the epiphyte mat that was drying out. If yeah. that, if that makes sense. Anyway, it has, I haven't like investigated it. It's just something that I was like, huh, looking at the situation and being like, this could be happening. That would be really neat. <laughs> it makes total sense though. It makes total sense. And the, you know, the flow of water, if you get if you've got more water in the system, you know, the tree rehydrating the soil around it, which, you know, potentially creates the capacity for soil moisture to be retained by, you know, positive undergrowth association or maintaining sort of the microbial environment that continues to symbiotically feed the tree. It's like it, it, it all makes sense. And I'm sure it's so complex that someday if we get to the point where we figure it all out, we're all going to be like, oh, my gosh, can you believe this? Can you believe this? <laughs> Yeah, if you want to look up, look more into it too, it's kind of been like redubbed um, hydraulic redistribution because it, because it, because of just that point, like it's not that simple. It's not that we're just lifting water. It's like, you know, it's not a one-way street. Like it's it's we're redistributing water. So hydraulic redistribution is kind of the new coined term. Right, right, right. Yeah, fascinating stuff, Lucy. I I, I didn't even get to ask you about your ponderosa pine uh, <laughs> research, and if you're this was- so it's all good. <laughs> if you're if you're open to it at some point, I would love to circle back and just focus on ponderosa pine. It's my favorite species. It's oh. I, I grew up in Colorado and ponderosa pine is like my version of a tree. Like as a child, oh, nice. if somebody said draw a tree, my version would have been a ponderosa pine. Without knowing it, that's oh, just okay. what I relate to tree, the meaning of tree, ponderosa pine for me. So I <laughs> saw that you did that research awesome. in Arizona and I was like, I got to ask her about ponderosa pine, but we're going to talk about redwoods and I have so many questions. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun to get to chat with you. 